part five of a series, one-on-one with Jesus, based on the Gospel of John. And uh, John writes a little differently than the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, I think he's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he probably has them in front of him. And so when he writes his Gospel, he deliberately writes something different than what they have. And he adds in some missing pieces. He writes a little more theologically. And uh, in some ways, he writes a little more simply. And yet it's also deeper. Simpler language, deeper ideas. And he focuses a lot on -on one-on-one meetings with people. And uh, we looked at uh, the paralytic by the pool that Jesus healed. And we looked at that. And we, last week, we looked at the Samaritan woman Jesus met at a well. And this week, Nicodemus. Now, I just preached on Nicodemus three months ago. I'm assuming you remember everything I said. Okay? I'm not, I'm not recovering old ground. I'm assuming you already know that. So we are going to go into a little different part of the story, a little deeper. I just wanted to read this contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus is in John chapter 3. The Samaritan woman is in John chapter 4. Nicodemus and the unnamed Samaritan woman are as different as they could be. He's a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman. He's educated, orthodox in the Jewish faith. She was uneducated and heterodox. He was an influential leader. She was a nobody. He was upper middle class. She was lower class. He was morally upright. She was immoral. He sought out Jesus because he recognized his merits. She had no idea who Jesus was. Jesus sought her out. He came to Jesus at night. Jesus and the woman met at noon. Nicodemus responded slowly and rationally. She responded quickly and emotionally. But Jesus loved them both. He came to seek and to save all types of people. So Nicodemus. Notice uh, what it says about him, and I want you to notice uh, five things about Nicodemus. First of all, it says he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee. This is like strict Orthodox Jews, like Hasidic Jews, the ones that wear the black hats and have the have the long uh, long ear ear ears. What do you call these? Sideburns. They used to have those in the 70s. I think Dan Brody had them once. No, long time ago. Okay, I forget where I was. Pharisees. In Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, there are one million Jews that live in Israel. Okay, one million Jews. There are about three to four million Jews that live in the rest of the Roman Empire, somewhere else in the world. So most Jews live somewhere else. A lot of them live in Turkey. A lot of them live in North Africa. Some live in present-day present-day Iraq, Iran. They've really scattered as a people but about 5 million Jews in the world. Out of those 5 million Jews, there are 6,000 Pharisees. 
That's not very many. 6,000 Pharisees. Right? You can almost count them. That's how many have risen to this level and are so strict in observing the Old Testament law that they would call themselves a Pharisee. 6,000. You read the gospel, it seems like they're under every rock. But uh, in reality, there's about 6,000. And all of the Jewish people look up to them. These, this is as religious as you can get. This is as good as you can get. This is what we aspire to be, like the Pharisees. Notice he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's called the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day, and there are 70 of them. They are the ones who try Jesus, and uh, they are the ones who vote to put him to death. Notice he comes to Jesus at night. Um, I think he doesn't want other important religious people to see him, and I don't think he wants the public to see him. He doesn't want to look bad. Notice he recognizes Jesus is a teacher from God. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Why? He sees his actions. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He says, I see what you're doing. I know what it means. God is behind you. God is with you. You are speaking for God. That's what, that's what Nicodemus is saying. Uh, what John does as he writes this is he strips out all of the nicety talk. Uh, I think that when Nicodemus first knocks on the door, somebody opens the door and says, Hello, how are you? <laughs> what is your name? Or Shalom, whatever, whatever they would say in Jesus. All those niceties are stripped out. Nicodemus says, I recognize you're from God. And the first thing Jesus says to him, stripped out of the niceties is, Notice. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So he says, amen, amen. Truly I tell you, this is an important sentence, this is the truth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So unless you have a second birth, you can have no part of what God is doing. You can't understand it. You can't even see it. You can't even see the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God means a number of things. It means going to heaven, but it means more than that. It means being saved. It means being part of God's family. It means being in a relationship with God. It means you are a part of what God is doing. And Jesus is saying, unless you are born again, you have no part of what God is doing, what he's doing now, and what he's going to do in the future. That's not yours. Striking. I used to think that Jesus had conversations like this with people just to show that he was smart. That Jesus, in the repartee of a conversation, could always show someone up. Now I don't think that. I, as, now as I look at these, I see statements of love. And Jesus goes straight to what he needs to hear. Here's what you need to know, Nicodemus. You're in trouble. You have not been born again. You have no spirit of God in your life. 
so you have no part of what God is doing. And that's frightening. But he needs to hear it. Well, Nicodemus does not understand. Notice how he responds in verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Thinking of physical birth. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Doesn't even make sense, he's saying to Jesus. How can I be born again? So Jesus explains it, verse 5. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. Uh, let me say this. There are multiple interpretations of what that means. What it means to be born of the water. Okay? I don't have a definitive answer for you. I can give you lots of good ones, but I look at them and I go, well, that makes sense and that makes sense. One means to be born of water means you're born physically. And born of the Spirit, you're born spiritually. Maybe born of water has to do with baptism. The idea is, is that when you come to Christ, or in Jesus' day when you came to follow Jesus, you went through a baptism of repentance. So the idea is, is you've committed yourself, and you've humbled yourself, and you've repented of your sins. Um, it's hard to say which, which of those would be better. Notice what Jesus says in verse 6, though. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Hmm. So in order for me to be spiritual, I have to have the Holy Spirit give birth to me. When does that happen? Let me back up just a second. This is why we belong to an evangelical church. Evangelicals believe, even every evangelical in the world believes this, that there must be a conversion experience in your life. And as you come into this world and as you go through life, you are a natural person. You are not, one, you're not part of God's family. And you go through life and you go through life. Something happens. And the next minute you're part of God's family. There's a conversion experience. One point in time. And you are changed forever. That's what it means to be an evangelical. Okay, now for Roman Catholics... Roman Catholics believe that this takes place at baptism with a baby. That's when you are born again and you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit at baptism. Catholics are wrong. That's not when it happens. 
Now, Catholics believe you can lose that, right? So you can be born again, you can go through life, and you can do something bad, boom, you lose it. Something else has to happen. Okay, every evangelical believes that you go through life and you come into this life, you're not part of God's family. And then something happens, there's an experience where you meet Jesus Christ and you give your life to God and the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he changes you on the inside so that you are born again and you have a spiritual birth. Now, Notice what he says in verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Uh, Jason loves the King James. And one of the reasons why Jason loves the King James is that the you here is plural. So the King James has ye. (laughs) Ye must be born again. Right? So he says you must be born again, singular, And here Jesus says, no, it's not just one person that needs to be born again. Everybody. You, plural, have to be born again. Verse 8. This seems surprising. So Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, to be born again, the Spirit has to do something in your life. And you don't control the Spirit. And I don't control the Spirit. Right? You've got to have the Spirit blowing. Um, When I drive now down to London, I see windmills. How many of you see those windmills? (laughs) Sometimes they're moving. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes I wonder why they're not moving. But when I do see them moving, I know something's happening. Wind's blowing. Even though I might not be able to see it, I might not be able to feel it, if those things are turning, I know the wind is pushing the turbines. Right? You can't control the wind. You don't, it's, hard to, it's hard to figure it out. So it is with the Holy Spirit. You have no control. You have no control over the Holy Spirit. And uh, when you came to know Christ, uh, you, th- you might have thought you had control over that experience, but you didn't. That happened to be the time the Holy Spirit was working in your life. You responded to the Holy Spirit's moving. Wow, wonderful time. Now, notice verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked, how can this be? Now, this is striking. This man is more religious than you will ever be. Right? He's more religious than you will be. He works harder at it. He's put more years into it. He spends more time in his Bible. He spends more time praying. And Jesus is telling him, there's something wrong. The Holy Spirit hasn't worked in your life. And Nicodemus is stunned. How can this be? How can I be this religious and not know God? How can I be this religious and not be part of God's family? But that's exactly the case. Sad. 
You see, religion is not the key. Right? Religion is not the key. A relationship with God is the key. And it's got to be initiated by God. That's the wind blowing. Now, that's the introduction. <laughs> okay. That's what you heard last time. This is what the sermon is about today, starting in verse 10. Notice what he says. Jesus wants to explain this. How can this be? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. You do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept, do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus. He says, I know these things. I've come from heaven. Nobody else has come from heaven. Only Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Notice verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Here's that story from the book of Numbers. Please listen while I read the story. The children of Israel traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. The people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. Many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake. Put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Okay, that's the story. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Before I get, I have five points. Before I get there, a couple years ago I was driven, driving down by Wallaceburg, and I was on Lampton Line and just about to turn into Wallaceburg down Forehand Street. And I noticed there was a stick on the road. And it was a big stick. And so I kind of pulled into the other lane so I didn't run over the stick. And then as I went by, I noticed it was a snake stretched across the road. And it was about 10 feet long. And it was big. And I thought, wow, I want to go back and see that snake because that's huge for around here. So I backed up a little bit. I didn't run over the snake. 
and I got out of my car, and when I got within about 20 feet of the snake, he started hissing at me. And I go, okay, I'm close enough. And, uh, you know, amazing, the size of the snake. Uh, and I thought, I know there are poisonous snakes in Wallaceburg, but not usually that size. But uh, So I, I didn't run over him again with my car. I let him go. Uh, I hate snakes. When I was, uh, when I was a counselor at camp, in, in, as a teenager, I, I used to counsel at a camp up in uh, Sioux Lookout, uh, northern Ontario, and uh, we would have native uh, First Nation children come into the camp, and uh, there we would give them a camp experience. And uh, one night I woke up and there was something in my sleeping bag. <laughs> and I kind of kicked it and, uh, you know, kicked with my leg and thought nothing of it. In the morning, I dumped out my sleeping bag and there was a snake that had been in my sleeping bag. Uh, it's important to shake out your sleeping bag before you get into it. And I thought... I hope some kid didn't put that into my sleeping bag. I thought it probably just crawled into my sleeping bag looking for, some, looking for a warm place. But I, ooh, I hate snakes. Well, just, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And I have five points of comparison. Number one. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent and the Son of Man must be lifted up. Number one, the people are in dire need. The need is great and people are dying. That's why he lifts up the snake in the wilderness. So it is with Jesus. The need is dire. And we're dying if we don't have Jesus. That's why he has to be lifted up. Okay, so number one, the, the, the need is so great. The need is dire. Number two, notice the object must be lifted up so that you can see it. And so he puts the serpent on a pole so that you can see it from a long way away. Imagine if he had just left a, a, the bronze serpent laying on the ground, right? You'd have to crawl over it to, to, to see it. But no, he lifts it up on a pole so you can see it from a ways away. So, Jesus Christ is lifted up on a pole. Now, why is he lifted up? Most literally, the Romans lifted him up so that people could see him and make fun of him. And part of the humiliation of crucifixion is you do it publicly on, on up high, and in this case, on a hill, the hill of Golgotha, or the hill of Craniu, the hill of Calvary, the place of the skull so that people can see him. Number three, there's a correspondence between the problem and the representation that is lifted up. There's a similarity to what's on the pole. If you're bitten by a snake, what do you put on the pole? You put a snake on the pole. You and I have been bitten by sin. So what does he put on the cross? He puts sin on the cross. 
Jesus is on the cross because of sin. It's injustice that he's there. And then it's your sin and my sin that is placed on him. And so what, what you look at is representative of the problem. Number four, all you have to do is look. If you're bitten by the snake, if you just look at the serpent on the pole, you'll be saved. Right? If it's behind you, all you have to do is turn around and see it. And you'll be saved and you'll look at it. Oh, I'm better. So it is with Jesus Christ lifted on the cross. That's what it means to believe. I am going to look on Him for my salvation. I'm going to depend on Him and trust on Him. And that's all you need. Poor Nicodemus. He thought he, he had done it on his own. And Jesus said he had nothing. Jesus did it all. All you have to do is look. Finally, number five. The correspondence, there is healing. There's life. There's eternal life. You look on the snake and you live. And you look on Jesus on the cross, eternal life. So this morning, I would ask you, are you born again? Are you born again? Has the Holy Spirit come into your life? And has He changed your life? Has the Holy Spirit come there to live, the Spirit of God? And if He hasn't, you've got no part of God. And so how are we going to get him? How am I going to get the Holy Spirit to blow in my life? I'm going to look. Because just as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Uh, notice in your text, there is an explanation for this. The very last verse and uh, the NIV that we put in your bulletin, notice it doesn't have quotation marks at the beginning of verse 16. And so the NIV thinks that this is John's explanation of what Jesus has just said. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell if Jesus is saying this or if John the writer is explaining what Jesus has said. Okay, but either way, verse 16 is an explanation, right? How the Son of Man must be lifted up so that we can have eternal life. And he goes, well, let me explain that to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Look to the sun. This morning, uh, this is the day for you to look. Right? Look. Look at the sun. Believe in him. Trust him. Give him your life today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.